Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to Conspiranormal, and I am really, really excited about the guest that we have tonight. Kind of a dang on theme from, from the last episode. Yeah, where we talked about saints, and we're, we're getting into some, all things biblical tonight. And we're also, uh, I guess, sort of time traveling. We're like calling tomorrow somehow. I don't know how that works. <laughs> Which I'm sure this host gets a lot of whenever he's on uh, he's on podcast in the United States or anywhere else that he's in. But uh, last year, just out of curiosity, wanted to find out if there was a good podcast about uh, kind of like the history of the Bible or like biblical history. Um, and I typed it in into the podcast app on on my phone and i found a podcast called history in the bible and i said well that looks interesting i saw that there were several shows that i could catch up on and i'm a big history podcast buff i really enjoy them if i'm not listening to paranormal podcasts then i'm usually listening to a history podcast lately and this is one of the ones that i spend a lot of time with just catching up on and I'm real happy to have the, the host here, Gary Stevens, of History in the Bible podcast. Gary, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. G'day. Well, I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. We got some planes going by. Uh, you are in Sydney, Australia. Sydney, Australia, where it is the first day of summer, and it's pretty gloomy, I must admit. It's grey really? and coolish. Yeah, how cool does it uh, does it get in Sydney? How like like in those in the winter time does it get pretty cold there? Or? No, not by your standards. The, yeah. the the coldest the maximum on the coldest day ever in Sydney would have been about twelve degrees Celsius. Let me convert that into your wacky system. <laughs> good that, old good yeah. old Fahrenheit. That would be about fifty degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, so you've got a chart back there behind you. I do. That, you, that you're consulting the, yes. the metric to... Thank you. <laughs> yeah, because unlike measurements, I mean, a kilometer is half a mile. Easy. You can't yeah. do that with temperatures. Right, right. There, there is no trivial conversion. So, yeah, I actually have a big chart. They come in handy. This is off the subject very much, but like um, being that Australia and the United States have the similar route in in. Was Australia ever on an English system of measurement? Oh, yeah, sure. We only metricated in about 1970. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, okay. I would have figured it would have been much earlier than that. No. That's interesting. No, only about 1970. It went fairly smoothly, actually. Yeah. 
There was talk um, in the United States around in the 70s about converting, but it never happened. Yeah, you might start another civil war doing that. I uh, know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could happen here again. Well, well, you've had metric money for years. When did you get rid of pounds, shillings, and pence? Yeah, you're right. Right. Yeah. And we didn't get rid of pounds, shillings, and pence and move to a decimal system until about 1970. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's right because Australia is 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 a dollar, right? Yeah, you it's a dollar. A, you have the dollar, yeah. Yeah, right. But so the, until then, they used um, you guys used the, the kind of the, the same the British style currency. We used to say names. Names. Okay. Yeah. So it was Australian yeah. pound, um, shillings, pence, and guineas. Ever heard of the monetary unit called a guinea? I have. I have. I don't know what the what, what uh, number it is, but I have heard of a guinea. A guinea is one pound and one shilling. Okay. It is. Well, it was only ever used for posh department stores, that sort of thing. So you didn't buy a coat for five pounds. You bought it for four guineas. I don't know why. That's just that was just the way it was. <laughs> Very, very interesting. Uh, so you started this podcast, I think, in 2015, I believe. Something like that. Actually, that, yeah, I think you know better than it, I do. Yes. And, and I guess to, to, to make a distinguishing, to distinguish it a little bit, um, why did you choose to call it history in the Bible instead of something like history of the Bible? What's kind of the difference there in just the, the, the two words? The history in the, I chose the history in the Bible specifically because history of the Bible was a fairly common expression, so that would be no good for branding, and history in the Bible because that's exactly what my show is about. A lot of the, the books of the Bible tell historical stories. So one of the main themes of my podcast is, uh, are these historical stories true? Where did they come from? And so, I mean, obviously, you go back to Genesis, the books of Kings, uh, Samuel, Joshua, Judges in the Old Testament, the Tanakh. They're full of history. Are, are they real? Did they? Did they actually? Uh, did these people actually exist? It was a fascinating topic, and that was the, that's the core of the podcast. But around it, of course, uh, I then march into areas like yeah, the history of the Bible. Where do the books come from? Who wrote them? Uh, what communities use them? Uh, and by the way, the whole show wraps up in March in 2023. Oh, really? So yes. you're drawing it to a close. I am okay. indeed. Yeah. Um, is that with the Book of Revelation? Oh, no, no. The Book of Revelation is actually fairly early written, if you look at the New Testament books. I finish in the year 200 with the wonderfully named Irenaeus the Heresy Hunter. Okay, so you go chronologically. Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the show proceeds chronologically. And I end up with Irenaeus the Heresy Hunter around about the year 200 because by that time, the solidification of what I call the Imperial Church in Corporate had occurred. So it was uh, by the year 200, it was a well-established franchise throughout the Roman Empire. And if I went on any further, then I'd just be overlapping other podcasts. Mm -hmm. 
So I thought, okay, this is a decent place to stop. Okay, you've actually done this in, I guess, really, for lack of a better term, seasons. How did you kind of divide it up? Because there's really like, there's three sections to the history in the Bible podcast. Uh, That came fairly naturally to me, actually. Although I make the divisions differently to the way most people would. So the natural division, you think, would be, we look at the Old Testament, then we look at the New Testament. No. My first season ends with the Jews slash Hebrews slash Judeans slash Israelites going to Babylon. That actually forms a natural break. Because when we come back with season two, when they return from Babylon, Judaism has completely changed. Even though, of course, everyone pretends it hasn't. The experience of the Jews in uh, Babylonia profoundly changed. Well, it's, it's all, this is also the place where a lot of the writings in the Bible come from. They wrote them in Babylonia, which was then uh, probably the most sophisticated civilization uh, in the ancient world. So I start season two with the return from Babylon. Then we march through to the end of the Old Testament. And season three, oh, no, no, no. Then we march through to the end of the New Testament. We keep going. Because this period also includes, after they come back from Babylon, we end up with the second temple period. Uh, And the second temple was the rebuilding of the temple, which the Babylonians had destroyed. And in the second temple period, Judaism changes again, changes again. Uh, The invention of all these apocalyptic movements, that the world is going to end. Radically new ideas, certainly not seen in the Old Testament, except in little tiny hints. And that naturally blends into the New Testament since Christianity is basically an apocalyptic Jewish movement. Uh, and season, season three, my final season, is the denouement. What happens after the New Testament closes, but all the other books, which almost, almost made it into the New Testament, but didn't. So I cover those. And some of those would include like stuff like the Gnostic Gospels, right? The, the Nakamadi texts. The Gnostic Gospels from Nagamadi, also a lot of other documents, uh, like the Acts of Peter, the Acts of Andrew, the Acts of James, blah, 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 blah. A lot of fan fiction was written about the Apostles, which floated around in late antiquity and early Middle Ages. Uh, books like something called The Shepherd of Hermas, which almost made it into the New Testament. And The Shepherd of Hermas is a book uh, about a guy called Hermas, a slave who gets visions uh, from his former, from his dead former uh, mistress, slave owner, uh, to guide him to Jesus. So it, it's much, much more than the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels were never candidates for entry into the New Testament, but maybe about a hundred other books were. So yeah, it's, it's all these sorts of things. Yeah, there's a lot that just did not get that just did not get put in, and guess I guess it was was written was written later, and we'll kind of get a good context of what was written when, and just go through. Uh, of course, we're not going to cover like every single book of the Bible. That's that would take a long time. Uh, you do a good job in the podcast of 
all these different Bibles or these different types of Bibles, because there's the one that Protestants are familiar with, which I think is like 66 books. And then you've got the Roman Catholic Bible, and then you've got the Eastern Orthodox Bible. In fact, it's because of you that I went and got an Eastern Orthodox Bible because I wanted to see what was in it. Because there's all there's oh, okay. all yeah, there's all kinds of different books. For instance, like uh the Catholic Bible adds in the, the books of Maccabees. And but then the Eastern Orthodox Bible has the two books of Maccabees and then a third book of Maccabees, which isn't even about the Maccabees, but but okay. <laughs> I, and, and the Orthodox oh yes. Um I mean one of the things I tried to do in the podcast is get away from the notion that the Bible means the Protestant Bible. And show, I mean, I would think even most Catholics do not understand that they have more books than the Protestants do. I, I mean, half my family is Catholic, and they don't even own a Bible. So I don't think that they even know that. And of course, unless you're an, an and how many say English speaking Orthodox people know that uh, the Orthodox have even more books and divide them differently. Uh, and, of course, the weirdest canon is that of the Ethiopian Orthodox, a community of obscure origins. But it's very big. There's about, I think, maybe 45 million members of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Now, that's a lot of people. You know, we're, not ju- we're not just talking a few thousand or a hundred thousand. And they have bunches of books which no other canon even touches. For example, Josephon. Jubilees, Enoch, one book called First Maccabean, which, although it sounds like it, has nothing to do with the books of Maccabees, and another book which is called Second and Third Maccabean. And this is typical of the weirdness of the Ethiopian canon. Even though it's called Second and Third Maccabean, it's still counted as one book. <laughs> So they have a whole bunch of books which simply, well, some of them are early Christian literature, actually. Uh, well, actually, Jubilees and Enoch are two of the big apocalyptic books that the Jews were using during the Second Temple period. They made it into their canon. And there are various uh, Christian books like uh, the Didascalia, which is basically a book of church order. You know, it's how to run things, how to conduct the Eucharist, uh, what to do during services that floated around in early Christian literature, and that actually became part of the canon in Ethiopia. Unfortunately, it is really, really hard to get copies of a lot of the Ethiopian books. Really hard. So I just have to, in a lot of cases, I rely on what scholars said. So they still have a large amount of books that are untranslated and unavailable? Uh, Books like Jubilees and Enoch, which are in the Ethiopian canon, we have earlier versions which are written in Greek, so you don't need the Ethiopian books which are written in Ge'ez. Uh, and apparently, it's been a pleasure to scholars to find out that the Ethiopian Ge'ez version accords very, very closely with the Greek versions that we have. And scholars always love it when that happens, because then we know we're, we're onto something very, very interesting. But yet, some of the books uh, written in Gears have simply never been translated into any other language. 
And I think, too, the Ethiopian Bible wasn't even really just even, I guess, quote unquote, discovered by the West until the 18th century. Oh, yeah. So I don't think, yeah, I don't think the Book of Enoch was even was even known about, I don't think, until then, because it was in the Ethiopian Bible. That, that's true. Uh, yeah. Back in the 18th century, some German whose name I forget collected a bunch of uh, manuscripts he found in various obscure monasteries and places through Europe. And he published them. But they were published as interesting, funny stories from the Middle Ages. And they were taken to be fairly late-written fan fiction. Now, it later turned out that a lot of these books that he collected were, in fact, stretched right back to antiquity. But at the time he collected them, round about the time of the American Revolution, they thought, oh, this is funny. Okay, weird, but... Yeah, purely for antiquarian interest. And it's only in the 19th century that we started to realise that, wait a minute, all this stuff is much, much older than we thought it was and comes from not some monk in a monastery writing in the year 1200. It comes from a, a Jew writing in the year 300 BCE or a Christian writing in the year 200 CE. So the, 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 the realisation that Christianity and Judaism had different histories to what we thought they had only started to dawn, dawn in the early 19th century, I think. And it was a bit of a struggle to get that accepted. Because in the early 19th century, people still thought that Moses wrote the five books attributed to his name and everything else was uh, written under God's direction. Now, as you can imagine, that took almost a century. Uh, for modern analysis to whittle those ideas away. Oh, you sent me a good summary. I know it's been a while since you've, um, yeah. since you've talked about this in the show. Um, but the, the old Testament is also referred to as the Tanakh, which I believe that's the, the, the Jewish name yep. for that. And that's divided. Generally, how is the Tanakh, the old Testament divided? The Tanakh is divided into three divisions. The Torah, which are the five books of Moses, sometimes called the Pentateuch in English, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, so it's Torah, the, Neve, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. <clears throat> and from that you get the acronym Tanakh. Now this is, that's, this is a different division to the Christian division. Uh, an important distinction is that Daniel is not considered a prophet at all in the Jewish tradition. Daniel is part of the writings. Now, the prophets consist of, apart from the people we think of as the prophets, it also includes what Christians would think of as the histories. Joshua, Judges, Kings, Samuel. The writings consist of, well, I suppose, all the things we would think of as say, uh, Ruth, Judith, depending which Bible you use, Psalms, Proverbs, Chronicles, all those sorts of things. One distinction in the Jewish Bible is that in the Christian tradition, we have the 12 minor prophets in each a separate book. In the Jewish tradition, they are just called the 12 and are considered one book. uh, And that's probably the way it started, because apparently if you add up all the 12 minor prophets, all of them together would nicely fit on a standard scroll. So they probably did start off as chapters in a single book. So that's, that's the Jewish division. Later, 
Although, interestingly enough, if you look at um, modern English translations of the Tanakh, they often adopt uh, Christian divisions. Uh, for example, in the Jewish tradition, First and Second Kings are one book. First and Second Samuel are one book. Uh, in the Christian tradition, they're divided into two. But if you look at a modern Jewish Bible, they've often gone, okay, right, Christians, all right. We will humor you and divide kings into two books, Samuel into two books. And I should also note that often in modern Jewish translations, they have adopted Christian chapter and verse numbering. Chapter and verse numbering in Christian Bibles is actually very recent. The chapter numbering comes from about the high Middle Ages, but no one actually thought to number verses until about like Tudor England, early 1500s. And even then they only numbered every 10th verse. So it's really not until about the time, say, William Shakespeare, that you would find a Bible you would recognise today. With, with books divided the way we think of them, with chapters in each book, and with every verse numbered. So that's really very recent. And then about that time, we get the King James Bible, which is one of the widely, in the English-speaking world, that is, that is basically the Bible for hundreds of years. Yeah, that's it exactly. And I suspect that certainly in the English-speaking world, the King James Bible is the one that would have popularized chapter and verse division. Uh, now, uh, with that, many Jewish figures hate the idea of putting chapters and verses into it. They say, well, you're Christianizing our sacred texts. Don't do that. Others say, there is no prohibition against it. Nothing. We can, we can divide, we can, you know, number them any way we wish. So there's a bit of a tension that way. It would seem kind of hard to reference certain things without that. Exactly. Just, yeah. Chapter and numbering is, chapter and versing, versification is brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, I do think in some cases, though, in the Bible, there's some, there's some parts that where the break is just kind of arbitrary. Uh, there is, actually. And in, in my, yeah. my English translation uh, by the Jewish Publication Society, there are many places where they have changed the versification to make it more sensible. Most of the changes in versification in Jewish Bibles are actually fairly minor. But yeah, there are places where it's obvious whoever did the versification, he must have gotten tired at that point or he'd had one too many wineskins. So <laughs> they just rectified it. But I think oh, there's only one or two exceptions where there are big changes. But it's a brilliant tool. And it's also a democratizing tool. If you don't have uh, chapters and verses, it's very hard to argue theologically, isn't it? You have to go, oh, yeah, um, uh, 50 sentences into First Chronicles. You say this, I say that. Whereas, <laughs> as opposed to saying First Chronicles 1, 26. I'll read this, Gary, if you don't mind, and we, we can kind of expound on it, uh, what you wrote for me here. So you said, to discuss the history of the books, we need to set the stage with the history of the people, tribal period, supposed unified kingdom under Saul. It's supposedly circa 1020 BCE, whose dynasty is supplanted by David, split of the kingdom into Israel in the north and, Ju in, in the north and Judah in the south, circa 920. 
Israel is populous, wealthy, cosmopolitan, and polytheistic, bordered the Med and the wealthy state of Aram, Damascus, ruled by different dynasties. Monotheism and the idea of the worship of the one God, Yahweh, started here with the earliest prophets Amos and Hosea and Elijah and Elisha. Judah is a landlocked backwater, capital of Jerusalem, ruled continuously by the house of David. Judah only became important when Assyria smashed Israel 722 and refugees fled south, bringing with them monotheism, destroyed by Babylon 586. This is both BC or BC. Um, really, I learned a lot from listening to your show and different conceptions of understanding how the history shaped the books and this idea that uh, monotheism may not start until this kind of separate kingdom period. And uh, you say also, too, that like the, the, the United Kingdom may not have actually existed. Yeah, uh, I should point out the characterization you just presented has only been developed in the last 50 years. It's, it's, it's fairly recent. Particularly the distinction between rich Israel to the north and poor Judah to the south, that is also a new conception. Now, Judah is the home of the capital of Jerusalem. And most people think of Jerusalem as the city on the hill, the shining city, vast metropolis. Modern archaeology is saying, until the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and all these refugees came south, Jerusalem was a couple of shacks. It was, it was just nothing. And it was only that uh, a big change with the fleeing Israelites coming south that turned it into a, a fairly... It wasn't even you know, that hot shot of a country. It was still pretty backwater. Monotheism, I mean, I think it's fairly clear that even when Judah was just the last remaining kingdom, the monotheistic party struggled because the prophets constantly talk about backsliding. In the histories of the kings of Judah, let alone the kings of Israel, there are constant admonitions to stop worshipping idols. And one of the most important later kings of Judah, a guy called Josiah, has to conduct a massive reform program to get rid of all the little country shrines. And the country shrines, it's sort of like in Genesis when Abraham, Jacob and Judah go out to worship somewhere. They've got no temple, they've got nothing. So you build a little shrine in the countryside and worship there. And that was still going well into the, till the very end of the Judean kingdom. And archaeologists have also found lots of little statues called Asherahs, mm-hmm. yeah, which are statues to the goddess Asherah throughout um, the former kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Polytheism was very, very, very common, and it took active efforts to stamp it out. And I think this is one of the important things about the Babylonian exile. When the final kingdom of Judah was annihilated by Babylon, and some of the Jews were deported to uh, the Babylonian Empire, the polytheism got sort of wrung out of them, and presumably to enforce their own identity while living in Babylon. Uh, I, I think the monotheistic party crafted itself as the nationalist ideology of the people, and it would have made them unique in the Babylonian Empire. We only have one God. Right. And what's more... Right. This God doesn't have statues. You can't see him. It made the 
it made them unique in the entire Mediterranean yeah. world uh, in it, the Near East. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So it made them unique and must have been a very powerful social unifier, which prevented them diluting in the Babylonian Empire, because the Babylonians were really big on deportation. Whenever they they tent, when conquered a place, they would move the people to somewhere else. Didn't really matter where; they just moved them somewhere. Usually they weren't treated that badly when they got there, mind you. For example, it's only recently we've discovered records uh, in Babylonia of a, uh, several generations of a Jewish merchant trading family. So it's not like the song by the rivers of Babylon. The Jews are not walking around clanking in chains. They're creating communities uh, and, and doing fairly well. There's, there was a Jewish community in Babylon all the way until the war in Iraq. Exactly. Uh, Babylonia, which later became the Parthian Empire, was a major axis of Jewish activity alongside the Roman Empire. I think a lot of people think that the, the, the Jews, you know, they just lived in the Roman Empire. Right. But, but from what I can gather, the latest data is maybe, maybe a quarter to a half of the world's Jews in antiquity lived in Babylonia. Uh, Babylonia became the traditional name, uh, even when it wasn't you know, actually run by the Babylonians. Uh, and it formed a vibrant, vibrant community. And we know that there was a fair amount of transmission between the two. And often when things got rough in the Roman Empire, the Jews would flee to Babylonia, the Parthian Empire. Fortunately, the Parthians treated them very well. The Parthians were... In one sense, the very best people you'd want to run your empire, because they're not going to interfere. They're not interested. They don't promote an agenda. They just say, okay, do you acknowledge us as your imperial overlords? Okay. Okay. Uh, And we won't do anything to you guys. Just pay a few taxes, and that's it. So the Parthian Empire was a safe haven for a long, long time. And as you say... That community lived vibrantly right through the Arab conquests, the Ottoman Empire, until very, very recently. Just to kind of talk a little bit about the New Testament, you talk about the Torah, and this is the five books of Moses. And for thousands of years, the idea that Moses wrote the Torah was taken as gospel. In the late 19th century, scholars developed a documentary hypothesis that held that behind the Torah were these sources. So these are called... J uses Yahweh as name of God from Judah. God can appear and talk to you. E uses Elohim as the name of God from Israel. And P, late source from Babylonian or Persian period, which we just talked about, rules and rituals, purity and holiness, and the importance of priests. God is transcendent. And so you've got these three sources, and then you've got a fourth source, which is the Deuteronomistic history, which is hard to say. But this is basically... (laughs) This is basically, you said, uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and possibly Jeremiah, uh, written from late kingdom Judah to Persian times. So one of the things in like in 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 religion, they would say, well, you know, the Torah was written by Moses. Like you said, that was a popular conception all the way into the 20th century. Yeah. In fact, if you, you know, I mean, they're still described as the first book of Moses, second book of Moses, so on and so forth. Um, but Deuteronomy is actually a later edition. 
And but the first parts of the ten, of the of the Torah were actually written first, but they were probably written much later. And I guess that they were finally compiled. All this stuff was finally compiled, I think, under Ezra. I think that's that's the common, the most common theory today. Uh, Ezra, and he's the guy who leads the Jews back from Babylon. I mean, it seems to me there is compelling evidence that uh, a lot of the Bible was. Uh, edited, redacted, compiled in Babylon, because Babylon had the resources, the intellectual resources, to support this activity. If you met the little Hebrew kingdoms, I mean, they're not intellectual cosmopolitan hubs of the universe at any time. Babylon was. So if the Bible is going to be compiled at any time, during the exilic period, just after, is the ideal candidate. The idea that the Torah actually had sources was first mooted, again, around about the time of the American War of Independence. But that went nowhere, of course. It was re-mooted around about 1820. And the guy said, hmm, hang on a minute. I've just noticed something. There seem to be parallel stories. The name of God seems to change between these stories. All these little differences. And again, in the early, 19, early 1800s, that went nowhere. Uh, I mean, you could still get locked up for heresy in those days, couldn't you? In some places, you can still get locked up for heresy. It's not until the late 19th century, mainly amongst German scholars, that the full-blown literary and critical analysis of the Old Testament kicks off with this idea here, the documentary hypothesis, that there are distinct sources with distinct agendas, and you can make them out in the books of Moses. And the idea that the book of Deuteronomy and the major histories, you know, Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings, were written by uh, this one person who has a distinct agenda specifically. And that agenda is we worship in Jerusalem. We only worship in Jerusalem. We worship at the temple. We only worship at the temple. And one of the interesting things is that Although this is a theme of the book of Deuteronomy, the book has to be rather coy about it because Deuteronomy sets itself during the time of Moses. There is no Jerusalem. They haven't even conquered Canaan yet. So the book of Deuteronomy has to express it as, you know, guys, one day God will show us this city and he'll, um, oh yeah, and when we get this city at some indefinite time in the future, that's the only place you can worship. And also, we'll have, uh, yeah, a building. Let's call it a temple. One day, we'll have that. And that's the only place we want to worship. So it has to word it in this really weird way to explain what's already happened. It's essentially backdating it. And, and, and the book of Deuteronomy, there's the story that it's found somewhere in the temple or something like that. And the idea is that Josiah was kind of the beginning of like, monotheism really starting to establish itself in this country and uh he was the king that you know once they pulled the deuteronomy they could pull that out and say oh see look this is you know um th- this is what this says this comes from moses this comes from this time um and and then you've got the deuteronomistic history which is the i guess the rest of the story 
And what's kind of interesting about that is that in the book, in, in the Bible, we've got the, the, the two books of Kings, as you said, it's really supposed to be one book. You got the two books of Kings and then following that is Chronicle or the two books of Chronicles, but Chronicles in the Jewish Bible, it's in the, it's in the, it's in the writings. It's not considered a historical book. Uh, I, uh, as far as I know, the books of Chronicles are probably the least read books of the Old Testament. Uh, no one reads them because, hey, we've got kings. <laughs> right? why, do we, why do we need this extra stuff? Because yeah. it's largely a repetition of kings, but it's, it's rather duller. There's no drama or excitement. It's just one king after another. Uh, and lists of, of lists of things. Yeah, it, for the first part of the of the first book, it's mostly a list. Yeah, it's just yeah. lists of this and that. Right. I mean, this this guy has no talent for 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 composition or drama. Whereas the the guy who wrote uh, the Deuteronomistic history, it's really very interesting. There's lots of great stories there. David and Solomon Chronicles. No, nah, nothing. It's not entirely sure why it was retained. Uh, I think one reason is that Chronicles, it covers, like, kings and Samuel, both kingdoms, sorry, kings, uh, both kingdoms, and it has a particular dislike of the northern kingdom of Israel. So I think it it may have been retained specifically for that dislike. They didn't like Ahab and Jezebel and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, and it, it, it sort of, I mean, kings isn't too keen on those people, but Chronicles sort of amps it up a little bit. And it, yeah. it pokes, poke, 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 Israel whenever it can. I think it was from your show that we t- you talked about uh, with someone about that, that Kings and Chronicles come from two different kind of traditions. Yeah. Uh, Kings is part of the Deuteronomistic history with its theological agenda. Chronicles, we have no idea where it comes. We, we don't know mm. who wrote it or when it was written. Hmm. I mean, it, 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 it sounds like it was written by a government bureaucrat in his spare time somewhere. <laughs> and that's about, I mean, yeah, I mean, now Chronicles does make one key change to the return from Babylon. But unfortunately, I've totally forgotten what that key change is. So I I can't remember. But I, I, I think if you're having trouble sleeping, yeah, I'd start off with uh, chapter one of First Chronicles. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or just listen to <laughs> Yeah. You won't make it to chapter two. <laughs> you can actually listen to them. You can find the like the, the audio Bible on YouTube. Yeah, you know, oh. that that'll put you to sleep real quick. Yeah. Because I think it literally goes like Adam, Seth, Enos. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. all these and, different things. And I I think it's also pretty big on priestly lineages. Yes. Yes. Which I, I think that's the distinction, is that hmm. it 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 might come from the Levite uh, point of view. It it could it could well because they are very keen on establishing continuity of genealogy, going all the way back to Moses' brother Aaron. I'm curious for some of this, and I don't want to make a distinction too about about Ezra. Is that you know he? It's not that he writes these things; it's that he compiles all these different sources. And 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 I guess the 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 term that you that you use, and I guess scholars use, is is redaction. Uh, I must. Admit, I'm not sure why they use the term redaction and redactor as opposed to 
editor. Yeah. Uh, Redactor seems to be one of these things which the scholars are just fond of using as a piece of jargon. And I'm not even sure what the hell the difference is between a redactor and an editor. Mm -hmm. Except, I suppose, I mean, we use redaction to mean, oh, eliminating things, don't we? You have a a government docket which has been released to the public, but 90% of it is blacked out. Right, It's been redacted. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, they refer to... I don't know, edit, what's wrong with the word editor? editor? Yeah, I guess it's just another word for the same thing, I guess. <laughs> as, as far as I can see, I, I've yet to hear someone explain it. Maybe there's some technical difference, which of course distinguishes us plebs from the scholars. So really I would say by the time, by the time of Alexander the Great, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, is pretty well set. It's pretty well in place. There, I would disagree with you. Okay. Let's go past Alexander to the establishment of his successor states, the Hellenistic kingdoms. A lot of Jews have migrated to Egypt. A lot of Jews. Though they are a major community in Egypt. And they very quickly lose Hebrew and Aramaic and start speaking Greek. So I think the second King Ptolemy in Egypt says, I love your books, but I can't read them. Let's make a Greek version. And the Egyptian Greeks say, great idea. So that way we end up with an edition called the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Hebrew Tanakh. But the Septuagint differs in the books that it has compared to the Tanakh and often in passages in those books. So I think by that, by and this is about the year, say, uh, Alexander died, what, 320, no, 323? So this is about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 280 BCE. 280 BCE, I think it's fairly clear that the canon of the Tanakh had not stabilised, and we know that because we have a separate Greek language canon which differs. And at the minute, I think the consensus is the extra books in the Septuagint, which are exactly the ones you find in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, mind you, exactly the ones, uh, they, they were part of pretty much the standard canon. They weren't added. They were the standard canon, and the rabbis later threw them out. So the books in the Septuagint weren't added. They were um, ditched. And, and that's where you get the difference, part of the difference between the Orthodox and uh, Catholic canons against the Jewish canon and also the Protestant canon because Martin Luther is the one who said for the Protestant canon I am kicking out everything in the Old Testament which is not in the Jewish canon so he threw out those Catholic books which had Greek originals and left us without canon now Martin Luther also wanted to get rid of the book of Revelation and it's only by historical accident that his successors said, nah, Revelation, it's a bit wacky, but let's keep it in. I can only imagine what effect that would have had on Western civilization if Revelation had been taken out. There's, there's a, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah. I think Revelation has had a baleful influence. And, and yeah. yeah. Life would have been a lot simpler if Martin Luther had got his way and just got rid of this. Because Revelation is clearly a, a weirdo apocalyptic text. 
I guess the common problem with a lot of this stuff is that it's just so decontextualized. If you, okay. I'll, I have a low opinion of Revelation just because I think, oh look, it's been interpreted, what, every generation decides that the various figures it depicts are alive now and they're going to do something and blah, 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 blah. And it's just, well, we got well, Vladimir Putin. I mean, you know, it's, I guess that's the latest one, right? Yeah. And one thing I'd like to mention for your listeners, Revelation does not mention the Antichrist. There is no Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Yeah, it talks about the dragon yeah, the other, and oh. that figure, the 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 oh. whore of Babylon and all that stuff. But I think the Antichrist is really mentioned in, I think it's Thessalonians. Uh, first, uh, the letters of John, first and second John yeah. mention the Antichrist, and that's it. But I'll, I'll bet 90% of Christians are absolutely convinced that Revelation talks about the horned beast and the Antichrist. Uh, I think... Uh, a common theory today is that Revelation isn't even a Christian book. It is a fairly standard Jewish apocalyptic text, which has been rewritten very lightly, uh, and the name of Jesus added. And actually, if you look at Revelation, the name of Jesus barely appears. He appears in the prologue and the epilogue, but anyone could have added that. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting how the denominations um, deal with it. Because, I mean, the Catholics and the Orthodox don't really pay that much attention to it. No, not at all. It was really the Protestants that began to pay more attention to it. And then by the time you get to the Plymouth Brethren in the 19th century, that's when it really blows up. That's... That all that stuff that you know, the, the, there's so much that is written about the you know the 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 the, the book of Revelation and uh, dispensationalism and all this stuff that you know that that just it really comes from the Plymouth Brethren. A lot of people don't realize all this kind of you know the a lot of these these things that you hear like the the idea of the rapture the you know the post tribulation the the pre tribulation all this that really. These are all things that were going on with the Plymouth Brethren that they were talking about. Yeah, very recently. Yeah. Very recently. 150 years ago. Yeah, very yeah. recently. Yeah, the Catholics and the Orthodox regard Revelation as an embarrassment, uh, basically. And it's only some, some Protestants that have picked it up. And nowadays you'll find many Protestants sincerely believing that, as you say, the Revela- that, that um, the rapture, preacher, the tribute, all this stuff is actually solidly in the Bible and has always been. And it's just been invented virtually yesterday. Well, it's interesting because, you know, there, there was all this, um, I guess when the church councils, you know, they would talk about the book of Enoch. Yeah. And I, I can tell you, in, in, in some Christian cir- circles, some really fringe Christian circles, I, I know, because I used to be a part of all this kind of stuff. All right. They really love the book of Enoch. Okay. okay? Seems like it's growing in popularity. Yeah, for several different reasons. But but the ancient church, the early church, did not and would not recognize the Book of Enoch and did not put it in, but the Ethiopians did. Yeah. But they were isolated from the rest of Christianity for a thousand years. And so, um, you know, what's really the difference? I mean, they're both kind of crazy. And, and the imagery is very similar to each other. Yeah, exactly. Revelation is a standard Jewish apocalyptic text, just like Enoch. 
and Enoch is bat poo crazy. <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> well, you even know, you know, like, I mean, I heard one of the, you talked about another podcast about the movie Noah. Oh, yeah. And even in that, you know, Aronofsky, he's not a Christian. I mean, I think he's, you know, he he's really into Kabbalah and those that type of stuff. Okay. But, you know, he, you know, a, a lot of that was really borrowed from the Book of Enoch, much more than the Bible itself. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, when I yeah. resaw Noah uh, for the episode we did on it, uh, I was really astonished that the entire opening sequence comes straight out of the Book of Enoch, uh, including uh, the angels, the rock monsters, fallen angels, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And I was thinking, geez, some one of these scriptwriters is actually actually knows about it. Oh yeah, Tarkovsky, yeah, yeah the, okay. the director. Yeah, uh, Sophia, have you watched Noah yet? No, I have not. You need to. <laughs> it's 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 interesting. You watch that and then watch. Follow that up with the mother, which was this movie after that, which is all biblical allegory. It sounds like nightmares. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's yeah, but well, I, I think Noah was more kind of like his attempt to do a big budget action movie. Okay, but he put a lot of his. I mean, there's a you know, I mean, we've talked we talked about this with another guest at one point, but like, you know, he's got that little mineral that they're they're mining in the beginning called Zohar. Oh, you know that's. That's the the Kabbalistic, the main Kabbalistic text, right, Serfiel? The Zohar? The Zohar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Moving into the New Testament, what's our earliest manuscript that we have that's extant? Is it the Dead Sea Scrolls that are the earliest that we know of? The Dead Sea Scrolls contain no uh, Christian texts. Right, but I mean, just say any any book of the Bible. Oh. Are are they kind of the earliest? Oh, by far. Yeah. Until the Dead Sea Scrolls had turned up, I think, in 1946, 1947, the oldest physical manuscript we had of the Old Testament Tanakh dated to about the year 1000. That's, you know, that's about the time William the Conqueror. Right, right. Uh, but we've had old Christian manuscripts, which until the Dead Sea Scrolls were far older than any ancient Jewish manuscripts. I mean, uh, if, you, if you look at Christian manuscripts, the various oldest ones that we, well, not the very oldest, but the oldest complete verse collections in the New Testament are astonishingly ancient. ancient. They are the Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and they date to about the year 350 AD or CE. So that's shortly after Christianity was uh, legalized in the Roman Empire. So it's astonishing we have those things. But there are, in Christian terms, we have fragments of um, uh, various books which are probably older. But yeah, for, for the Jewish texts, the Dead Sea Scrolls are by far the oldest manuscripts that we have. Okay. Uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls contain not only big chunks of the Old Testament, 
I think the biggest chunk they found was the complete book of Isaiah. They also contain a lot of uh, apocalyptic texts, such as Enoch and Jubilees. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff in there like, what is that, the War Scroll, Serfiel, you know, talked oh, about? That's right, yeah. That's right. Yeah, there's the War Scroll. There's the unique Copper Scroll, which is made of copper, would you believe? And which seems to be, it seems to be a guide to hidden treasure. No one's really ever been able to figure it out. They're they're mostly the the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they're are they still associated with the Essenes, or has that changed? I, I think a lot of scholars would associate with the Essenes. To my mind, that's ridiculous. It just so happens they were found in caves near where the Roman Jewish historian Josephus says that the Essenes lived. And certainly, originally, scholars said, oh, they were written by the Essenes. Well, no, we don't know that. But I think that's still, it is still an unpopular view to say they were not written by the Essenes. But to me, it is bleeding obvious. It's just a collection of stuff which could have come from anywhere, anywhere, and which was stored there. Whether it has anything to do with the Essenes is a completely moot point. But to say that it was made by the Essenes is actually an ideological position. Because if you say that, what you are saying is, well, all this weird stuff we found, like you say, the, the, the war scroll, the scroll of the temple, was made by this wacky little group. Nothing to do with mainstream Judaism. Right. Uh, so in a, in a sense, it, it isolates the Dead Sea Scrolls. It still regards them as uh, Jewish treasures, but says this does not represent what most Jews were thinking. Whereas if you adopt, say, my view, yeah, sure, it's just perfectly standard stuff. Yeah, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, I, I think they date them back to like about 100 BC to about 100 CE. I think there's like a 200-year... Uh, yeah, if I remember correctly, they're, they're, they're written over a very wide range of time. Is there an idea that they might have been hidden during the the uh, the first war, the first Judean war where Jerusalem was destroyed? There, I, I think that's the standard yeah. theory, yes. Yeah. They were hidden um, as treasures uh, when the Romans came marching through. I haven't heard of um, a better theory. Yeah. And it makes sense. And that's about like 60, about 70 AD, I think, is when yeah. that happens. So that's right, about 70. So we could talk, we could talk some about, uh, about the New Testament as well. And I remember you saying that one of the things you, were, you found interesting was that the New Testament is all written in Greek. And a lot of people don't know that, that it was originally written in Greek. I was, I was surprised to discover that. And I was even more surprised to discover that that is rarely commented on. And to this day, I still do not know why. I mean, have you ever had that sort of phenomenon where you discover something and you then work out that no one else has discovered this and, well, why are they talking about it? Yeah, I'd say all the time. (laughs) All the time. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, in your show, you do that. Yeah, yeah you probably have yeah. it all the time. Yeah. So every single document in in the New Testament seems to have been written in Greek. 
There is no evidence that they're translations from either Hebrew or Aramaic. There are some Hebrew, Hebraisms yeah, there, and Jesus actually speaks in Aramaic when he's on the cross, but they're all written in Greek. And to me, that means that very, very early on in the history of Christianity, Christianity split from Judaism. Or, or alternatively, it only appealed to Greek-speaking Jews and, of course, Greek-speaking pagans. And I don't know which one it is. I mean, my, my own view and the view of many scholars would be that by the time uh, the earliest documents were written after the letters of Paul, I, I think the, the Jews for Jesus fans had become extinct during, say, either the Great Revolt of 70 or the succeeding two wars. And the only Christians left were ex-pagans who spoke Greek. But you find some people who say that, um, no, there were still Jews for Jesus fans out. Well, I think you still had the groups like the Ebionites that were still mm. around, I think, in the time of Constantine, maybe, and maybe even later, I think. Uh, yes, there are those. And there certainly seem to be communities that live past that. There was a lot of intermingling between Jewish and Christian communities, whether they persuaded each other or anything is different. But as late as around about the year 400, which is almost a century after Christianity was legalised, you find some church fathers complaining that some of their congregations are still going to synagogues. So if you find these complaints as late as 400, there was obviously some sort of mm -hmm. um, in, intermixing. Although institutionally, I think they were very distinct. But, but as you say, there were, yeah, there were still, and there were, I suppose there were still some tendencies for, for some Christians to be attracted to Judaism. I mean, it's, Judaism is a lot simpler than Christianity theologically. And certainly if you look at the 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 history of Christianity in late antiquity, Christianity becomes riven with heresies where it can be very serious to be on the wrong side of the fence if the emperor changes his mind and decides to believe something slightly, slightly differently. And you find yourself believing something different to him and you end up at the end of a Roman pike. Whereas if Judaism, there's just one thing, it's, it's quite straightforward compared to Christianity, and you're not going to get in trouble for it. So the, the general order of the New Testament is not by what they were written by. So what is no. written first? The earliest documents we have are undoubtedly the letters of Paul. Paul, some people consider him the second founder of Christianity, and there's something to be said for that. Although it's clear Paul got his basic ideas from the disciples, although he disagreed with them profoundly. Paul is the disciple to the Gentiles, to the pagans. The, sorry, not the disciple, the apostle. And I might as well make a this distinction between disciple and apostle. Disciple is simply Greek for student. There were precisely 12 disciples. No, I changed that. 13 disciples. They got a guy to replace Judas when he turned out to be a bit of a bad pick. Apostle is Greek for ambassador. So 
Paul was not a disciple, but he was an apostle. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, and he writes letters. It's pretty certain we only have a tiny fraction of them. A guy like Paul, who seems to really like writing, in his lifetime, or in his missionary period of about 20 years, he could have written up to 100 letters, 50 to 100. We have, at best, 13, and frankly, most people think that half of them are fakes, and we really only have uh, six or seven genuine letters. Where, where are the rest gone? As, as with so much, we do not know. I mean, one idea is that Paul's communities didn't keep his many letters because, as Paul was insistent upon, Jesus is coming back next Tuesday. The world is going to end. There's no need to keep a letter. You'll be able to talk to Jesus directly. Or maybe some of his letters put forward ideas which later turned out to be mm, a bit dodgy. So we just, you know, we'll just burn that one, shall we? Pretend it never happened. So the letters of Paul are by far the earliest documents. Written about 45 to the year 64. Uh, Paul died during the reign of Nero. It's uh, wonderfully played by Peter Ustinov in uh, Ben-Hur. Is it Ben-Hur? Well, you had, well, uh, he, he, yeah, I guess it's been her. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking Quo Vadis, but I think that's a little later. No, Quo Vadis is set in the same time. Yeah, I'm trying to work. Is it, is it Quo Vadis? Oh, maybe it's one of the Victor Mature movies, <laughs> like The Robe. They're all set in the same time, aren't they? Right, right. All pretty much the, I mean, all pretty much the same movie, really. <laughs> yeah, they're all pretty much the same movie. They just changed the cast of characters. I prefer Victor Mature myself. He's a man who knew when to quit. He got out of movies early. <laughs> Quo Vadis. Yeah, you, yeah, I'm looking at it here. Is that Peter Yusuf? Yeah, you Peter Yusuf and Quo Vadis, yeah. Which is actually, okay. just as an aside, Quo Vadis is just based off of, really, I guess, tradition. It's not based off of anything that's even, I think it's about the death of Peter, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. which is not even talked about in the Bible. No, yes, you're quite right. There's this whole tradition of uh, Peter, like Paul, uh, travelled to Rome to proselytise, and Peter, like Paul, died during the reign of Nero. And none of that appears in any book of the Bible. It's not in the book of Acts, that's for certain. And that's the only history we've got in the Bible, in, in the New Testament. Yeah, I think Acts ends with Paul going to Spain... Uh, yeah. Yes, with, with, uh, with saying he's going yeah, to Spain. Yeah, and that's it. That's where it ends. That's yeah. it. Uh, yeah, and in fact, uh, the disciple Peter disappears quite early yeah. in the book of Acts, about one third All of the All the rest through. of them do. Paul's the only one that talks about the rest yeah, of the book. Yeah. All, all the other disciples barely get a mention. I mean, what happened to Bartholomew? You know, what, oh, what happened to him? Yeah. Bartholomew, there's Jude, there's... Andrew, there's James the James the Elder, James the Younger. And the only James really mentioned in Acts isn't even one of those Jameses, the disciples. It is, in fact, James, the brother of Jesus, who was never a disciple. So although the book is formally called Acts of the Apostles, it should be called the Acts of Peter and Paul. It'd be much more no. The Acts of Paul 
co-starring Peter. Now, there is one of the, you know, there's some of the later apocryphal, I guess, well, they're not really apocryphal, but some of these later books, I think there's like the Acts of Peter. And I, I remember you did a really good job of talking about the, 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 the really great wizard battle that takes place in the Acts of Peter. Like, I mean, this stuff gets gets weird. Uh, yes, uh, yes, I remember that. Uh, it's uh, Peter versus Simon Magus, where Simon Magus levitates and whizzes around and does sort of things. And, and Peter calls to God, says, oh, we've, you've got to do something about Simon Magus, man. He's making me look like an idiot. Yeah. He, he will make everyone disbelieve in the power of Jesus. And then Peter asks God, please, could you make him fall from the temple and break a lot of bones, literally, and break a lot of bones? And that's exactly what happens. Bang. And then, then the people see, wow, Simon, you're not so great a wizard after all. And he gets stoned to death. It's such an elevating story. <laughs> I think it's something which should be read at Christmas time for little kiddies. <laughs> Speaking of which, too, I mean, we're kind of veering off the subject a little bit, but there's the weird infancy gospels where, you know, Jesus is like, Ooh. you know, is like killing people and, 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 and turning people into pigs. There's, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on in some of the uh, infancy gospels. Oh, that's right. Um, is it the Proto-Evangelion of James? No, there's another one. Yeah, the Infancy Gospel of Jesus. I call it the Gospel of Creepy Jesus. Yeah, it's Because weird. that's exactly what it's it is. It's weird. Yeah. 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 It, it's like that um, famous Twilight Zone episode from the 60s. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the little kid who's controlling it, who basically controls the universe. Yeah. And is, yeah. It's exactly like that. So Jesus uh, kills little kids on a whim or because they're doing something naughty to him. Oh, whew, just wacky. But it was very popular. And some people must have thought, yay, good on you, Jesus, sticking up for yourself at the age of six. You're the son of God. You don't need to take that crap from your schoolmates. So so, so Jesus, uh, I guess they say, I mean, he dies of the, the crucifixion is 32 AD. They're somewhere yeah. around there. I think the general time frame is 27 to 32. And then you said the probably the earliest um, of Paul's letters is about 45 AD and to about yes. 64 is what they think. Yes. So smack dab in the reign of Nero. And then, but then the gospels are written after this and they're not in the order of which they are written either. In the, 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 so there's, there's some interesting. No, they're not. Yeah. No, they're not. Uh, I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Throughout most of the Middle Ages, Mark was considered the weakest of the Gospels. And the standard belief was Mark was actually a watered-down or truncated version of Matthew. It's now believed that Mark is the earliest Gospel, written round about the time of the First Jewish War, round about the year 70. So Peter... Sorry, not well. Actually, both Paul and Peter have been dead a few years, five, ten years, maybe, and it's only then that the gospels start to be written. Mark is the earliest written. As far as we can then tell, it's a generation thirty years later that the gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John are written. And the now standard theory is that Mark's first, 
Luke and Matthew use Mark. Luke and Matthew also use a source which we call Q, Mm -hmm. which is mainly proverbs and sayings and that sort of stuff. And Matthew and Luke also have their own special sources in both sense. Sources in document, sources in something you put on a hot dog. So, and John is completely independent. It is not in the tradition of the other three. The other three are called the Synoptic Gospels. John has its own. It's just different. Although, interestingly enough, John is usually the gospel that Christians quote from the most. And I remember there was a show of Charlton Heston, and he said that he had used the gospel of John most. It's amazing Heston actually had um, an input into the text and the things he had to say. And he I said, mean, "That's Moses. That's Moses himself. That, that's true. That's Moses." <laughs> and he said, "Yes, I, I use John the most because I like it the most. Uh, John is much more theological. It's uh, Greek apparently is better. I like Luke the best. It's sort of the most harmless. And, and John is written by what, about ninety, they think ninety to one hundred A.D. So it's it's late." Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written at about the same time. Uh, I mean, I, I personally used to think that John was written very late. But the consensus now is it's written about the same time as uh, Matthew and Luke, and also at about the same time as Revelation. So they're all written round about then. Uh, also written at this time is the book of Acts, because it's pretty much universally accepted that the author of Luke and the author of Acts is the same person. So again, written around about the year 100. And I think it's worth pointing out, and this wasn't really noted until the 20th century, the book of Acts disagrees in many places with Paul's accounts of his travels in his own letters. And it is impossible to reconcile the two. And if you treat Paul as the primary source, because he's, after all, talking about himself, then Acts is wrong in many places. But we'll never know really the reality. Interesting. Hmm. And then you have letters that are actually attributed to Paul, but now they believe. See, that's the one thing thing I learned from your show is that I didn't really know that, 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 that there's some of the letters that are not, that they don't think Paul actually wrote. I, I knew that Hebrews they, was attributed to Paul, but they think now that yep. that was not Paul. But there's some of the letters that are just, I, I, I don't know, I, I guess those are datable to around the same time as Paul, or they, they could be later. They, they could be later. If we, if we, ignore, if we ignore ones which are disputed, I mean, there, there is a core of letters, everyone thinks, yes, definitely Paul. There's a few letters disputed, and there's another group of letters, which most scholars think, definitely, absolutely, positively not by Paul. These letters are called the pastoral letters, and they are First and Second Timothy and Titus. And the reason is clear if you look at them. If you look at Paul's undisputed letters, Paul, firstly, he hates families, right? Because the world's going to win. He doesn't want you to get married. If you're a woman, stay celibate. Don't have kids. Jesus is coming. But on the other hand, although he's anti-family, Paul is very pro-women. He's always talking about um, 
uh, high positions that women have in his congregations. Paul is a feminist. There's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, so those are things which are evident in his early letters. If you look at the pastorals, First and Second Timothy and Titus, that's at, completely out the window. Completely out the window. In one of those letters specifically, uh, Paul is made to say, I shall not, you know, have a woman teach over me. No women teaching. No. In his, in his, original, in his original letters, he has that all the time. The pastoral letters seem to have been written as a counter to Paul's quite liberal views in the first letters. And one of the intents of the pastorals is to put women in their place. And they become the foundation for the patriarchal structure of the Christian church. So Christianity lost out on a wonderful opportunity to institutionalise women as part of the power structure, and instead they became marginalised. And when you consider how important women are in the Gospels, after all, it is women who find the tomb, women who report that Jesus is missing, the importance of Mary and Mary Magdalene in the Gospels, I think it's a tragedy that I think it's a tragedy that the pastoral letters are ever written. How do you think that that shifted? Um, in I mean, this had to have been fairly early on in Christianity. It really seems to me that Christianity it begins as very much the religion of the underclass. That's what that's what made it so popular. And so you know, women, um, you know, were, were were even more marginalized. So. You know, I guess that's part of what you're talking about now on the podcast, where you're looking at the early church and the uh, that you call the church imperial. Um, and we could talk a little bit why that yeah. why you call it that, but you know, um, I, I guess this is something as the as the structure that we kind of know that later morphs into the orthodox the Roman Church and then the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church with bishops and the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I guess that that begins to you know, men begin to have a lot more control. Yeah, they do. And I'm, I'm just, let me look at my little chart here. Uh, I think the pastels seem to be written maybe 50, 100 years after Paul's authentic letters. And that would be right in the period when Christianity is morphing from the little independent clubs we see depicted in Paul's letters and in the book of Acts. And it is morphing into a McDonald's-like franchise where structures of authority are being created. This is why I call it the Imperial Church in corporate. You find by the time that the pastoral letters are written, call it 150, yeah, 150, the little independent church uh, congregations are gone. There are hierarchies of structures. You have men, only men, running the individual little congregations. Above them are bishops, who are in charge of whole dioceses corresponding to Roman provinces, and the bishops talk to each other. Uh, The bishops of Alexandria, Rome, and Antioch are becoming the senior figures in this area, and also Christians are imposing uniformity of belief. You're not allowed to believe anything except what the bishop tells you. And that was a radical innovation in the Roman world. In the Roman world, no one cared what you believed, say, about Zeus. What they did care about was what you did, what you practice. 
For example, how you sacrificed to Zeus. There were ways to do it and ways you didn't do it. But whether you, what you thought about Zeus and his powers, say, completely irrelevant. Christianity created the idea that, no, uh, you can get into trouble for thinking something. Not for doing something, just for thinking something. Got an airplane going overhead. Only a little one. Are you right by an airport? <laughs> actually, yeah. actually, it's been very good. They've changed the flight pattern. That was a tiny <laughs> one. I mean, this morning, they were going over about every two minutes at a height of 1,000 feet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they, oddly enough, it's the little planes that make the most noise. The big jets, they're actually quite quiet. <laughs> Is it kind of just some some ambience by now? Uh, I could check the flight radar, but no, they they physically change the. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I mean, does oh, it, yeah, but yeah. Does it bother you at all? No, it doesn't bother me. I've been living here for twenty years. Uh, you get used to it. Oh, yeah. right, right. I've been pretty close yeah. to railroad tracks. So. Oh, yeah. Now, I've lived close to railroad, and that drove me nuts much more than the planes did. Because after all, those. Trains are not going to change, are they? No one's going to reroute those trains to a different set of tracks away from your house. That's not going to happen. Whereas here, okay, the planes will move. What about some of the other uh, letters in the New Testament, like Peter and John, First and Second Peter? These, I guess, these are not. These were not written by who they say that they were written by. Essentially, no, they they couldn't have been. I mean, if you just take a look at the letters of Peter. Yeah. Okay, now Peter is a humble Jewish fisherman, and yet the letters of Peter are written in really quite good Greek. So either Peter went to night school, or he forked out some of his shekels to pay for a good Greek scribe, or wait a minute, maybe someone totally different wrote them. Uh, um, and a lot of the letters, I mean, most Christians often don't look at these letters. First Peter, that was contended for a long time. A lot of the church fathers thought, no, it definitely wasn't written by the disciple for reasons I've just said. Stands to reason, right? But eventually it was decided to um, include it. And one of the reasons First Peter was considered dodgy, is that not once, not once in this letter does Peter say, you know what, guys? My best mate was Jesus, son of God. You hear that? Me, Jesus, buddies. Never says that, ever. And you'd think Peter would, because, I mean, if you look at the Gospels, Peter's often going on about how Jesus and, and, and he are um, the, the best friends, and, you know, there's the whole episode where Peter betrays Jesus three times, etc., etc. So they're a bit disconcerted at that. Uh, and same, uh, Second Peter, Second Peter, Second Peter's just a complaint. Second Peter, which is usually agreed to be the last book of the New Testament written, maybe around the year 150, uh, is complaining that scoundrels and ruffians are coming in Jesus' name. 
Uh, and they, they've been telling the clubs that there's no such thing as the resurrection, you know, and the second coming. So it's an attempt to put things right on that point. And from what I can gather, Second Peter is usually considered to be the last because it seems to be set in an era where the imperial church in corporate has set. And that only happened around about, you know, 150 onwards. Couldn't possibly have been written by the disciple of the same name. Just doesn't make any sense. In the season three now, you're you're talking about the Imperial Church and Corporate. Why do you why do you use that term? First, I thought it was a rather zippy little term, uh, uh, and it has the three elements. I think it's imperial; it covers the entire empire. It's not just a, a small little collection of people uh, in the Middle East. It is now a church an organisation, not separate congregations, and it is incorporate. It is forming a quite sophisticated organisational structure. And it, it would be, it closely resembles you know, something like McDonald's. It's a franchise system where the bishops have the franchise uh, to run Christianity in their part of the empire. So I, I think that that description is, a, is, a, is an accurate and apt description particularly in comparison to the primitive church of individual little clubs. And also, of course, by the year 150, the church is you know, it's getting some money into it. They're picking up bucks there. We could say that, that Paul is kind of like Ray, Ray Kroc, oh. you know, taking away from the, you know, the, the, the original disciples of Peter and John and all those guys that are the McDonald's brothers. And you could say that it's like a, you know, it's like a hostile takeover. That- is an excellent analogy. I wish I'd thought of it. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of it. I'm just going off the... Uh, Adam will give you permission. I'm to just going it. off the McDonald's analogy. There. Damn it. <laughs> well, there, there is yeah. some of that. I mean, you know, like, there, there was hostility to mm-hmm. Paul because of wanting to convert the Gentiles. Oh, it was the, the, the biggest first schism in the church. Yeah. The original prostatitis were Jews, and their conception of Jesus was, this is the guy who's going to be the king of the Jews and save us from the Romans. Nothing to do with the pagans. They're, the pagans are the people we oppose. And certainly in Paul's letters, not so much in the book of Acts, but in Paul's letters, there are several times Paul says, and I told Peter to his face, and you guys are accusing me of not being a good Jew, but I am, but I'm still talking to the pagans. Huge amounts of tension. And interestingly, one one of the functions of the book of Acts is to smooth that out and pretend it's not happening. So the book of Acts tends to make Paul look like Peter and Peter look like Paul. And thank goodness we actually have Paul's letters, which show that they just didn't get on, really. Paul on one side versus Peter and James in the other, they didn't like each other at all. It's it's a pity we do not have any correspondence from the side of Peter and James, actually. That would be fascinating to read. Yeah, Mm. it would be interesting. But a lot is lost, and that's the thing. There could have been such things, and we never... 
we never knew. Uh, I, I, this is probably beyond the scale of what we really have time for, but you know, uh, what's your thoughts on the, not necessarily the divinity of Jesus, because that can be a whole different thing, but the historicity of Jesus. You know, there is a school of thought that says that Jesus was not real. Yes, I argued this with a friend of mine. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced Jesus existed. But that's about it. There was a guy called Jesus. He did some things. We can't quite be sure what they were. He was charismatic. We'd be pretty sure of that. Jesus existed just as much as we can uh, think that John the Baptist existed. Uh, yet the school you're talking about, the mythicists, who say that Jesus absolutely did not exist, that seems to be a, a, a ridiculous overreach. I mean, my bare assessment, a guy called Jesus existed and did some things. How are you going to contest that? It's, oh, no, 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 he didn't do anything, didn't exist. No, I think that's silly. So he did, yeah. That's as far as I'm willing to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know that that's, that, that, that's become, you know, the, there was the first the debate about the divinity, and then there was apparently a debate about the historicity, and that's just, you know, so we're talking about two different yeah. things. Uh, Gary, this has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, it's, it's just been uh, really fascinating. And, um, you know, it doesn't really take away from anyone who might be um, fundamentalist in the sense of believing the uh, divinity of Christ and the God as portrayed in the Old and New Testaments. But, you know, it's good to not deny these these people and uh, these places of their humanity and their history, just like everyone else, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of strange to, uh, to be fundamentalist in these other aspects, you know, that aren't really tenets of the, the faith necessarily. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's either amusing, disappointing, or odd that a lot of Christians believe, well, they're convinced they believed everything in the Bible, but a lot of what they believe is simply not there as we discussed, uh, like the tribulation and the rapture. Uh, and I think Christians, actually, I think Christians should really read the Bible more. I, I get a feeling a lot of stuff they have comes to them secondhand, or they only know a collection of stories, and they never get into anything else. I think a lot of that's hard for a lot of people to understand because they don't have the context. Yeah, yeah, they, they don't have the context. Yeah, I think there's a lot of tradition involved. And I think you have other sources, too, that get mixed in, like something like Paradise Lost. You know, the, that gets mixed in there, too. And, you know, we could spend a whole episode really talking about the the idea of the devil. And, you know, like there's, there's, there's so much that you see just like, I mean, yeah. in the book of Job, I mean, Satan is just an advocate, uh, you know, that is – in God's court or whatever, you know, it's, it's, there's, these are almost like two different things. And, and so there's so much that's just based on tradition or on other works of classic literature that have nothing to do with the Bible necessarily. Which is okay for a, you know, a living changing religion, but then to be, um, to adopt this kind of these strict positions on something like that is, is odd. Yeah, although I suppose a lot of people do not know they are adopting these strict positions. 
at all. Uh, but actually, just just as a final thing, torments in hell. One of the great what mainstays of what, both Catholic and Protestant traditions. Descriptions are you'll go to hell, Sonny, if you got an abortion or whatever it is in your life. There are no torments of hell in Revelation. None at all. All these images come from something called the Gospel of Peter, which, of course, never made it into the Bible. Now, I suppose in the Catholic tradition, you're allowed to accept that because, of course, under the Catholic tradition, the Bible is merely the deposit of truth, which will grow through time with the Church Fathers, etc. But technically, if you're a Protestant and you only believe in the Bible, you are forbidden from believing in hell because it ain't there, guys. Interesting. I wanted to ask you before we close, just like, you know, is there any, from this whole process of you doing this, uh, how has this kind of changed uh, your viewpoint of the Bible and and the, what, what the other things that you've learned or precon- your own preconceptions starting out? Yeah. I suppose it hasn't changed anything. <laughs> I, I've been interested in the Bible from a, a secular point of view since I was a kid. Okay. Uh, even though I was brought up as an Anglican. But, I mean, Ang- Anglicanism is about as secular a version of Christianity as you can get. No, it hasn't changed my, my basic stance or views. I've been fascinated to learn things, which I didn't know. But I haven't come across, I haven't, you know, come away with a revelation or a change of heart about anything. Right. It's pretty much exactly what I expected. Yeah, Interesting. So this has kind of been a hobby of yours for a long time. You just decided that you wanted to go ahead and put it down as a podcast. That is exactly it. It's been a hobby for a long yeah. time. And in fact, I only created the podcast because I work in, I, I, well, I worked, I'm retired now. I worked in IT, okay, as a contractor. And that means jobs were erratic, okay? Maybe I get a job for three months and then I've got three months off because it's a fairly competitive industry. So I had downtime between contracts. So the podcast only existed for me to fill in the downtime. So that's how that happened. And I must know it's been absolutely fascinating. I, I spent two, two years in research before I recorded my first word. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I, I have a background in academia. Uh, as I said, Professor Little Part in America, academic in Australia. So I sort of knew how to do this stuff. And also, I was fairly convinced if I did not front load the research and instead did you know, research episode by episode, I'd give up. And the whole show would peter out. So those two years were well, were well spent. And, you know, in effect, it gave me like 50 episodes with work behind them as opposed to just going, oh, this is too much work. I'm out of here. Oh, I did think of something I wanted to ask. Uh, would you would you recommend uh, for people to read those books that didn't make it into the official canon or the uh, apocryphal books or even the Gnostic Gospels? Oh, yes, I think so. I mean, some of the texts are really hard to find. There is a good website called um, Early Christian Writings, which has an extensive list and references to texts online, which you can get. Now, a lot of the texts online you can get are often quite old. They're from some of the oldest, like late 19th century or 1940s. If you wanted modern versions of a lot of these books, you'd, have to, you'd actually have to go out and buy a book. 
But if you want to read them online, they are out there. As I said, that web, uh, this website is mentioned, by the way, on my website, www.historythebible.com, where I have a full living bibliography of all these things. Uh, one of my irritations about a lot of the translations of these old texts is that the translator has very stupidly adopted a sort of a King James approach. Thee and thou and wouldst. And you're thinking, no, don't do that. You're just making it hard to read, <laughs> you clown. You're writing in 1935. <laughs> Can we like it use the English of that period as opposed to you pretending to be King bloody James? <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> Gary where can people find you find and find history in the Bible and you had said that uh, it's going to come to a close soon uh, yes it'll all wrap up in March 2023 I decided that a couple of years ago it finishes and that'll be the end of my podcasting career but where can people find the podcast anywhere you can buy free podcasts which is Anywhere. <laughs> and the website again? www.historyinthebible.com. History in the Bible, all one word. And I should say, too, that it's a narrative podcast. So you, you're going chronologically for the most part or through the books of the Bible. But also, if, yes. if you listen for people that are going to listen to your, to your podcast, definitely listen to some of the other interviews that Gary has done and some of these collaborations that he's done. Like there's a whole series that he did with another podcaster about the, tw- the the 12 minor prophets that is well worth listening to. That's really entertaining and really informative. And uh, so, so don't, when you're listening, I, I would just like through the list is how I listen, try to listen to podcasts, but uh, you know, li- listening to those are, are, are important too. I think some good discussions. Yeah. Uh, uh, you're referring to my longtime collaborator, Steve Guerra of yeah. the history of the papacy podcast, just to get a plug in for him. Yeah, uh, and we've covered movies like Noah and various other things. Yeah, and they, they make a break. Well, guys, I'd like to thank you for inviting no, me thank you. onto your show. I've had fun. Absolutely. Thank you. We're going to close the show out, stay on the line for us. Uh, but, uh, guys, I want to thank you for listening to Conspiracy Normal. And if you want to help out, uh, we do have a Patreon, and Sirfield can tell you where to find those. Or that. You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal, uh, where you can check out some of our often weekly uh, extra Patreon episodes, as well as our monthly Strange Realities uh, streaming presentations uh, that we should be starting here at the beginning of the year again soon. Uh, you find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Excellent. All right, guys. Well, join us next time. We're going to be closing out the year. Uh, next week, we're going to have Chris Corey and Vincent Trewell are going to be joining us and then uh, for a wide-ranging discussion. And then after that, we close out the year with Dr. Future and then our year in review show. So stay tuned on Conspiranormal. Toodles.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.